Hello, and welcome to Art Monthly's Talking Art Radio program. Today, I'm joined by Sophia Foker, who is head of School for Fine Art and Photography at UCA, Isabel Harbison, who is a writer and curator based in London, and Erica Balsam, author of Exhibiting Cinema in Contemporary Art, published by Amsterdam University Press, and co-editor of Documentary Across Disciplines, published by MIT Press and released this year. Erica will be discussing and reporting back on Newcastle's AV Festival. Meanwhile, what about socialism? Isabel will discuss her current feature, Hot Babe, which asks which measures, strategies or choreographies can artists use to release the female or feminized body from its image incarceration. But firstly, uh, I was talking to Sophia, who has reviewed the James Coleman exhibition, which is currently on at the Marion Goodman Gallery in London, an artist who is known as much for the work he makes as much as the theory it produces. Um, Sophia, I wondered if we could start by talking about the ways in which you initially approached the review, as I know it initially began as an interview. It did, and it was really challenging because um, I was invited to interview James Coleman, and I was very excited to go along to uh, to conduct a, a unique uh, interview, only to find out that he was not interested in being interviewed, so I invited him to have a conversation and frantically wrote down everything he said, only to be told at the end of it he didn't want to be quoted. So it made me think a lot about um, um, the role of the critic, the relationship between the artist and the critic, and um, and what my role was in that context. And um, <clears throat> sorry, I felt that he has been written about so extensively that I was concerned that possibly he felt silenced by the voices that um, the cacophony around him. But he he made it very clear that he wasn't at all and, in fact, was really encouraging me to allegorise in similar ways, um, which at first I was quite reluctant to do. I felt that I was being positioned in a certain way as a critic and I felt reluctant to do that. But ultimately, I found myself seduced into that discourse, which is what I talk about in the piece. Um, but so, subsequently, I've been thinking about... Um, my role and I feel that he is very fastidious about how he configures his work how he installs it he spends a lot of time doing that and in the process I feel that he sees the critic as part of that installation and I felt very much that I was being positioned in in a way as as his works were and in dialogue with his works and it was exciting but it was also challenging yeah I mean his work is known in a way for it's it's very carefully installed i mean you i, I agree mm -hmm. that going into that exhibition you really do feel the precise nature by which he installed each work there's a very singular response to how things are placed um and it's worth pointing out you know he's 75 years old uh, he's been making work that spans 50 years and uh you know in a way do you feel like he is of a generation of artists or certainly video makers that is it's changed a lot since he's been working as a video maker or you know image image moving image maker um and how do you feel he seems to have almost separated himself or seems so as you sort of say silenced or moved away from um the contemporary discourse of other video makers perhaps i don't i don't yeah. think that i don't think that his age um and the moment that he's living in are um there's a disparity between those things. I think he's probably always mm -hmm. positioned himself in this way. I think he's a recluse. I think he 
he is very interesting in the way that he um, is reluctant to engage with social media. But I think he constructs his identity in very specific ways according to according to a certain kind of discourse um, and always has done that. He, at one point in the interview, said to me that he felt that um, the viewer was very much like the fly in... Um, in, in one of his pieces, and um, and I felt I was that fly. Mm. And he, he purposely <laughs> installs it, so you actually you create a silhouette in the work when you That's right. walk down the corridor. So he's, yeah. he's turning us as spectators into the this image in the screen. That's right. Um, and the critic is very much... Yeah, something uh, to be swatted yes. at. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but going through his work as well, there's a very sense of uh, melancholia. We talked a little bit about melancholia, but there is a degree of melancholia. Um, the image of the poppy for one that's downstairs and also matched with the memento mori of that looping video that's on the second floor of this sort of uh, fur ground ride that's very tightly looped of, mm -hmm. um, a, yeah, tightly looped fur ground ride that has something that's out of reach at the same time he's trying to grasp it. Uh, and again, the image in the back room of the Super 8 film or the 16mm film of a skull. So there is the sense of the memento mori or something of time passing in his work that recurs. Do you, do you feel that when you when you were walking through the show. Yes, and that's where, obviously, yeah. I, I felt um, um, unable to stop myself from allegorising yeah. around those things. I don't particularly want to do that. Yes. Because I feel reluctant to. Yeah. I think the work speaks in a certain way, and I don't want to necessarily participate in my own discourse that I construct over and above that. Mm -hmm. So this was my reluctance and the tension between myself and James Coleman was how do I speak about his work? He's been speak spoken about so extensively. His work engages the viewer in certain ways and I felt sort of reluctant to allegorise mm -hmm. in that way. But I did, you're right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can describe some of the works in more detail in that case. Uh, something like his use of slideshows uh, in the work that's immediately to the left when you go in, this work called Photograph, which yeah. shows you images of uh, school children in Dublin in 88, 89. Um, and it is reflective of, yeah, the culture and time of that work or that, yeah, of those images, I suppose, as children. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I know you don't want to talk about it, so it's sort of a bit, it's a bit of a hard... No, it's more that <clears throat> I felt that um, he... And and I were sort of quite preoccupied with the formal address of that mm -hmm. piece. And it has been written about quite extensively on those terms. And I think it isn't so much... Um, yes, the performances do suggest uh, a melancholia. And the text as well um, has a kind of um, poetic, melancholic... Um, um, connotation but ultimately um, I think his his concern is much more um, to do with the way that the work is formally installed and communicates meanings mm. about um, um, reflexive meanings about the medium itself it's worth drawing attention to in that case mm. the separation in that work between the sound and the image yeah. And it's it's very clear that the the you know the slideshow and then he places this very subtle sound piece, uh, and you can hear the breathing as you you write about this sort mm. of the sensitivity towards that. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the way in which then uh, Coleman applies the kind of formal craft around the image making or his images? 
Yeah, he doesn't use sound as as a post production strategy. It's very much um, he's he's very much concerned with sound in an equal way uh, as he is to the um, uh, preoccupied with the image, and that comes across in the whole in the way that he's installed the whole mm-hmm. um, the work within the exhibition space, so that um, the sound from um, the work on the on the upper level is constantly foregrounding the work mm. at, on the lower levels and so the sound is anticipating the the work that you, that is going to be seen later on and he's very attentive to the use of sound um in terms of shifting temporalities and i think he works with that mm. significantly yeah because that sound effect uh is almost like a heartbeat or it's a, a scratch or a loop on a record player i can't actually determine the exact way in which that sound is fabricated and he won't talk about yeah that. but it's yeah. It, it creates this pulse that as you say is echoed through the whole of the yeah. exhibition yeah and again bringing on that sort of momentum mori yeah. that sort of sense of um of of uh imminent doom in some mm. way it really gives that sort of very sort of um um yeah yeah uh, finality yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah um, does anyone else want to add a few words about James Coleman at this point, or is that? I had a question. Maybe um, I was really struck in the two new works in the show. Um, one, it, one is in extreme high definition, the poppy, and then this piece that we've just been talking about is really strange in the texture of the image. It's not really pixelated and low definition, but it's clearly. Um, emphasizing the pixelation of the image as it's blown up to this really um, large scale. And I wondered um, if you spoke with him at all about his kind of move into very digital textures, because he's quite known for these analog slide works. And it struck me that he was basically moving into digital image production and then kind of splitting between high definition on the one hand and quite low, Mm -hmm. poor images on the other. Yes, we did speak about that, um, and I, I, I feel that he isn't fully resolved about his um, use of the medium in that way. I asked him quite a lot about that, and I felt he was—he talked about um, the very high definition strategies that he's using, and I think he has a team that work um, in very kind of. Um, uh, at the top end of of the medium in that sense but um i didn't get a sense of of anything beyond that in terms of why he he went into such a high definition mode he didn't really sort of want to go there so we didn't sort of pursue that further but you talk a little bit about how he in a way he's less precious about the formats by which he chooses to show his work because sometimes he will show it in a 16 mil video projection and then other times depending on the context in which he's showing it so again it kind of it's a kind of it's unexpected i think because it he seems as someone i suppose it's that sense of rigidity of of someone that shows things that are so conscientious so careful and at the same time he's very sensitive to the uh the context and the positions in which he shows it as well so it's an it's an interesting 
Well, coming back to your original question um, over his his uh, you know possible disparity between his age and and um, and uh, the discourses that are emerging now in relation to um, time based work, I think he is absolutely not of his time, mm. particularly because of that, mm. because he doesn't have um, he 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 doesn't have any. Um, um, uh, concerns about shifting medians, mm. and that's very unusual because uh, people of his generation, artists of his generation, would have done. So I've encountered yeah. that extensively, and so it's very unusual to find somebody who can shift mediums so promiscuously mm. and effortlessly, really, which he does. Good. Well, in which case, we'll, we may draw a close on James Coleman for the time being, but um, we might come back to it. Um, I'd like to start with, uh, well, move on to other, uh, Isabel Harbison's feature, Hot Babe, uh, which is in this month's issue of the magazine, um, which brings together a kind of numerous artists and looks to try and undermine or overturn or radicalise the way in which uh, women have been objectified or using um, in imagery, image making over the last sort of 30, 40 years. Um, Isabel, can we talk a little bit about uh, some of the artists that you you sort of start uh, you sort of include really, uh, if we could start with Francis Stark, um, which sort of underpins to some extent uh, the opening of your feature. Um, can we talk a bit about her work and how that sort of fits with your ideas of your feature? It's probably right to start there because that's where I started. I've just yeah. fin- recently completed a PhD where I looked at, at a lot uh, in depth at her work. Um, and was fascinated by how she chose to kind of write the subject into being uh, in a variety of media. Um, so brilliantly, I reread very recently the architect, um, the architect and the housewife, and I'm always just so impressed by how she can navigate uh, her own position within a text or a work, and um, and really kind of undermine or destabilize my position as a reader or a viewer. And she does that so consistently throughout works. Um, and so I suppose uh, my best thing is, uh, you know, in many in many respects, an old work now, mm. 2011. But I I still think it's exemplary in so many ways, and I still come back to it. And I'm confused with it in this really mm. kind of beautiful and productive way that I don't want to yet lose. And um, and I suppose that's a middle ground for me of trying to think through artists of my generation in the kind of in their 30s. Uh, who are uh, approaching some of the um, image-making technologies and also uh, image-making uh, desires or, or occupations and habits and, uh, and trying to articulate their own subjecthood within that. Um, and also, I suppose, uh, after my PhD, really trying, which was not a, an art historical one, but really trying to art historicize that and think about practices that have gone before, um, where uh, where um, uh, artists, not only uh, women artists, but uh, artists working in performance and film, are really uh, are really um, raising the idea of how we perform images and we are encouraged to perform images, um, and where that brings us to now in a kind of economy. So I suppose that kind of maps mm-hmm. the territory a little bit, um, and and a kind of an increasing fascination with the von Rainer's relationship to images, which is very, uh, in some instances, fraught, but really, mm. really interesting, uh, and and kind of finding out more about that, and and really, yeah, wanting to just kind of yeah chart trace this back. history. Yeah, mm. uh, I think it's worth 
expanding a little bit on what my best thing as a work is mm-hmm. um it's as as you can actually i mean most people can actually watch it online it is on it's youtube on her website, yeah. I think, yeah uh or vimeo yeah and it's it's a sort of episodic uh work that lasts about an hour and i think 30 minutes or 40 minutes uh and brings together her sort of chat room conversations uh mm. based well using these two little avatars um male and female with little fig leaves on them uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how that work sort of situates itself and then we can sort of talk about how that fits into your into your feature a little bit um, how the work situates itself. I think yeah. the work began um, prior to My Best Thing as a performance that uh, Stark uh, did live uh, where she uh, takes, as you say, episodes uh, or um, transcripts she has from uh, uh, chat, chat forums, uh, chat roulette, I think, is the form that she was using, and these kind of online encounters with partners. Um, and uh, and I think in the original performance, she 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 reads through the various mm. uh, transcripts, um, and then that becomes articulated into this animation. So it's a very cheap, uh, 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 open access. Uh, it's called Extra Normal. Is the software? So it was an online animation software that she used. Uh, to animate these uh, episodes. Um, and in the episodes, she uh, comes into contact with two successive young, Ita- and I think coincidentally Italian uh, men, both of them to different degrees, kind of aspiring filmmakers or in some sense aspiring artists. Um, and she, uh, I mean, I use the I use the word she uh, because there's a, a real sense of uh, it being in some sense autobi- autobiographical though we're never sure I'm never sure of the limits of that um, but there's lots of reference to her own biography and her own career as an artist and her own uh, anxieties around uh, engaging the viewers and sustaining their attention and anxieties around showing the work where it's going to be premiered in the Venice Biennale where of course it does premiere in 2011 Um in the Arsenale and uh, um, and every episode is introduced with a synopsis of the previous one and uh, a sort of brief introduction to the next so she really does kind of play to the uh, idea of a kind of uh, attention uh, poor viewer uh, online and perhaps as well in, in the context of Venice Biennale we're all quite attention poor viewers um, so she, I think she plays out as well the kind of different uh, um, kind of a- exhibition making in the sense of the the real world, but exhibition making and that form of exhibition ism that's encouraged in her kind of life online. Uh, she talks about the motivation to make that work as being an addiction to images and to writing, which really underpins, mm. I think, a lot of her work. So I mean, I can I can talk. Yeah, I mean, it's in in terms of what you write in your feature, you talk mm. you pick up on Mark Godfrey, who says something about her being the work yeah, the, being, being nakedly, nakedly present, present, which you then question whether the validity of that is true or not. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how in which how the ways in which Stark actually starts undermining perhaps Godfrey's viewpoint now? Well, I think I I I read because I reread over this work, and there's a stray adjective <laughs> because. I think we say, anyway, I don't want to interrupt the the flow by (laughs) going over it, but the word dismayed shouldn't be in that text because I don't think Godfrey's dismayed. He writes about this in the context of a catalogue essay. So he talks about her work being, uh, disclosing intimate details and he goes on to say it's quite different to the way in which Tracy Emin might disclose uh, because 
you know, it doesn't have that trace of vulnerability or self-exposure. And I suppose that's that term nakedly present is something that I wanted to pick up. Mm -hmm. And that sense of her being so in control. This is a woman in control of the kind of um, images that she's putting mm. out there of herself and she's really I think quite self-aware or aware of the Im the potential implications of that um, so yeah I sort of wanted to 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 look about to look at how a filmmaker or an artist might uh, present a work about themselves or about their body um, be present in it but somehow kind of disappear at the mm. same time um, about I think I call it tena tenacious two-step there's mm. something of like a movement in that mm. uh, 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 there's something of a choreography and then of course I bring in you know Vaughn Rainer yeah. who's a choreographer but I mean I'm trying to trying to use that term more playfully um, and try and think about really the internal dynamics of that work and the complexities of it yeah I think I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about. Even in the Francis Dart work, there's a lot of about the idea of the framing of the body, like where mm -hmm. she's saying the cam, like they're referring to the cam, and he, I think at one point she said, "I can see your chest," and then the chest, or "Can I see your head?" Uh, and which part of the body is visible at that given frame? Although we don't see it, it's being described, mm -hmm. and it is that sense of what is present or what is not visible, mm -hmm. and that is, yeah, I think it does pick up on what you go on to say about Yvonne Rayner and her use of. Uh, how she was documented in her work. Mm. That sense of filling and emptying mm. the the film space. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting to follow up uh, on James Coleman with this because I think that's something that he does really amazingly, particularly in his slide works. I mean, just to take it out of the context of kind of women filmmakers, yeah. I think he's particularly good at really stripping back or uh, undermining the directives of these kind of images that we're being given and actually doing something really, really sophisticated. And I don't think James Coleman is a work. Those works of the 80s, I mean, they're so, they feel so contemporary. I mean, they weren't all works of the 80s in that exhibition, but I mean, those slideshow works have always really, um, yeah, I think they're really confounding in this way that he's such a sophisticated image maker. Mm. Um, uh, but anyway, there's no place for James Coleman in this article, <laughs> but it's nice to be it's able to digression. bring him in. Yeah. Um, uh, but in terms of bringing in Yvonne Rayner at this point then, who, I mean, I guess uh, this dates back to the 60s and 70s onwards, really, uh, where she was, you talk about that work that she made with uh, Duet mm. and how yeah, she resisted or she sort of became aware of how her body was photographed mm. um, and then sort of disavowed that, or as you say, this two-step. Do you want to talk a little bit about how Yvonne Rayner, uh, obviously Francis Dart was making work in this work's 2011, but this mm. is a much earlier work by Yvonne Rayner. Do you want to talk about how, what led you to p place these two works in context with each other? Um, I... I suppose on a general level, we'll always be interested in yeah. going back to Yvonne Ray. I mean, she's, you know, why wouldn't you? But um, but began to be really interested in how she, well, as a filmmaker, but then also how the concept of, like, dance photography, what that was relative mm. to her work. And particularly, and now's another thing to bring yeah. in, is that the title for this essay is actually No Trash Images. I know. It was never hot babe. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm not responsible but for that. That's all right. <laughs> but, um, but just, I mean, going through her relationship to the image, thinking about her choreography in relation to that, uh, the kind of, I don't want to say elusive because there's in no sense, I don't think, is she withdrawing? But um, 
but that um, it's not a manifesto. It was an essay that she wrote, which was subsequently called a manifesto, um, where she um, goes through these uh, different aversions. And one is to no trash images. And just really thinking about that term, like why is mm. she saying it and what is that term? And what's a trash image in 1974 or whenever, that 1973, I think, when that essay comes out? Or, or, need to yeah. refer to the text but and what is that now mm. and um uh so i think so, at that yeah. point it's good to sort of think about what hannah you, you start your feature with about hannah black yeah and her where she's you, she, she, rather she talks about the tick on essay the mm. the young girl um do you want to talk about that in relationship perhaps to yvonne rayner mm. yeah um so I mean, Hannah Black's an interesting um, artist. She makes um, uh, a moving image and installation work as well as her writing. And I really think it was quite a strategic move for me to wait the, um, m- you know, the attention to Hannah Black on um, the theory, t- um, mm-hmm. preliminary materials for um, uh, the theory of a young girl. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, because she rewrites it in such, um, uh, I think, powerful and assertive way. And... Um, so uh, let me just contextualize that before yeah. I relate it to come back to Yvonne Rainer. But um, so it was an essay that I read several years ago, um, the T. Quim uh, essay, where it's a short um, book. But um, and it was really provocative and it really touched upon, you know, a mm. lot of things that I would be interested in. Um, but there was a lot of critical fallout from it and it was accused of being quite misogynistic. Um, and there were some incredible reviews. Nina Power wrote a hilarious review saying, why isn't this um, the theory of a wizened pope, which I thought was a wonderful <laughs> alternative. Um, but actually thinking, well, there's lots of ways we can go from this theory. Um, you can assume it in lots of different ways. And um, one of w- which is to think about maybe how male artists, not necessarily... Mm. Um, um, you know, I would think about how someone like Mark Lecky maybe assumes that in maybe video works like Parade mm-hmm. um, and uh, where he's kind of performing something that borders on camp, but there's not there's not a kind of sexuality in it as in there's it's not a it's not a performance of yeah. homosexuality. It's a performance of of masculinity, but how it's a masculinity of the young girl. So I think there's ways of doing it where you really take that theory and you look at it from either gender yeah. or there's the way that Hannah Black does which she takes it and she asserts her position mm. as a young intelligent fantastic woman writer um, and she really undermines it in a way mm. but not through but n- through this very sophisticated form of a kind of positive critique um, or, po- or kind of uh, over identification with it mm. um, uh, so she struck me as a really um, excellent place to start and, and then I suppose that the um I mean, to bring it back to that of Vaughan Rayner, um, which I'm kind of, we're going quite yeah. a convoluted yeah. way about it because I, this is not how I wrote yes. it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I suppose. Um, I think it, it, just mentioning what she says, Black, when she says she, she, not talking about herself, but she as in the hot babe, she is a radical non-subjectivity thrown out of a wage relationship only to reappear at the market's core. Those that look at her and see only a machine are the machine of her becoming. Um, I think that's a very pertinent and um, forceful analysis um, of image production. And I think yeah. that's going back to, I think that's why it leads me to think about Yvonne Rayner and her mm. sense of uh, disavowal of how she was performing for the image. Yeah, um, I can see how those things mm. might reach each other in a way. Mm. And I think there's that that instance where Yvonne Rayner was 
um, participating in one of Bob Morris' performances mm. and was captured on camera. And the same evening, she had her own um, choreography or performance, which was in the programme. It was never mentioned in the Life mm. magazine. There was only these quite reductive images of her. And that feeding into a kind of economy or kind of titillating images, um, I suppose you can kind of relate it to that. But um, but it's kind of a broader, it's definitely broader. I mean, I suppose my, uh, I can understand perhaps Hot Babe is a kind of <laughs> catchy marketing title. I suppose my my hesitation with that as the title for, 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 for the essay is that it kind of plants a, too strong mm. a kind of Im- we all have that image now of course where it was more looking at kind of how trash images are treated by artists filmmakers who can kind of who can articulate this quite sophisticated choreography um, yeah and going back to something like Yvonne Rayner that work the video uh, the film she made The Man Who Envied Men which in a way mm. uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how that work is made and what, what's so specific about it um, so uh, Trisha who's the is the protagonist it's filmed around a week of Trisha's life yeah. we never see Trisha there's a kind of there's a restraint um, and um, and I think um, it's interesting again in terms of technique and how I was looking at um, the kind of I mean, you talk I mean you just uh, spoke about this very briefly but Erica's the, the kind of texture of the image um, and uh, transposing different kind of images upon one another. Um, I suppose that kind of technical approach to work seemed um, really pertinent with that specific work in relation to uh, in relation to my best thing. Mm. Um, but it's also about this Trish, and she never appears in the in the film. She's that's only right. A she's voiceover. protagonist. Yeah. Um, we see a variety yeah. of. Um, uh, scenes, many of which can, uh, many of which uh, show her husband Jack, this kind of overconfident, in some ways overbearing husband. Yeah. It's a kind of week around the point where she leaves him, um, and then we can talk about you know the, the implications of that. But um, yeah, well, you're right. Uh, Rainer's piece suggests that to be seen but unequivocally present is something of a privilege. Yeah, certainly more so than its opposite, seen but absent. Yeah, um, which I think comes back to like really not only the motivations for this article, but I think further research that mm. I'm doing and thinking about how with kind of social media and uh, and how this, what I was talking about, a kind of encouragement to perform images, that there's a constant kind of onus to, to, to take images of ourselves and others of artworks, of things that we've seen, of kind of vistas and upload them. And, you know, for this constant productivity or constant sense of your images being online... But yet, not being seen, mm. not being represented. There is no subjecthood within that. It's just, it's just kind of you know multiplicity of images. And um, yeah, I suppose that's a kind of cru- that's kind of crux of my mm. research, anyway. And um, yeah, and the and as you say, the commodification of those things and the sort of the dark core that you're sort of suggesting is the thing that's being buried or, suppl- or hidden within these proliferations as well. Is that is that right to say that? Is that where you're going with it? Or? Yeah, I think it's a, a strange, a strange. There's a strange invisibility mm. to it. There's a strange loss there. So, all the kind of, uh, all the kind of language that's around using media of a way of plugging in and communicating and having your verse, voice heard and being seen and being creative it's all the kind of it's actually 1968 yeah. kind of language of like autonomy and 
presence and being represented and not doing anything menial. It's all, it's, but it's how those how those platforms actually operate is huge. I mean, they're huge, huge businesses and all this work we're doing for them is yeah. we're doing for free, free and they are growing, mm. you know. So, so I suppose it's a kind of, there's so much going on underneath that culture of productivity or that culture of showing, mm. sharing images of yourself. Yeah, I remember Ian White when he was still alive. He remember yeah. saying him him saying to me, you know, that the thing that we have a problem with, the thing that we have to try and resist, is becoming an image. Yeah, you know, and that's it's that thing how we're always just turning into images rather yeah. than freeing ourselves. I think why Yvonne Rayner is very successful as an artist is trying to actually open up a dialogue or something beyond that, or there's a crack in it somewhere you can kind of think about something else. Yeah, and that's well, yeah. I'd say Coleman as yeah. well. It's like really. Definitely. Doing some great yeah. plumbing there, however yeah. they're <laughs> kind of doing it. But yeah. Did this grow out of a sense of disappointment of where current practices are as well? Or is that, do you not want to go down that particular? No, I don't mind. I mean, I suppose, um, yeah, there's a number of practices that I'm interested in, mm. certainly around the claims around the practice. So artists like Amalia Ullman or Petra Kortreid or Anne Hirsch. I'm so interested in the kind of discourses that they're plugging into or attempting to shift. And yet I'm really concerned about a kind of rhetoric which doesn't interfere with that, which it kind of, and, I, and I'm and i tentative to make this comparison, but I feel sometimes the same when I listen to like Jeff Koons or mm-hmm. um, like um, Karsten Haller or... Uh, yeah. <laughs> talk about their work and it just it's kind of rhetoric because it's not a, it's not critique how that how that I feel sometimes th- those works for me even though the discourse around them that's generated is interesting sometimes the work just reiterate or reproduce or reinscribe the kind of commodification mm. that's actually going on already and there's a kind of for me I suppose a kind of danger in that because that the the critique is kind of the rhetoric is kind of hollow mm. and i think that the you know and i don't want to undermine these artists because they are giving me an opportunity yeah. to kind of talk about this and think through it and they're creating a discourse and they're and they're creating a um you know a, there are a generation yeah. of artists and they're being very um you know, active and productive mm. and they are creating platforms for themselves to speak. And so, so I appreciate that. Yeah. But in looking really and, you know, I look slowly at works, mm. <laughs> not too many, just a few. And I suppose I feel that, that, um, that we have to kind of understand these kind of, and I suppose some people might, again, hesitant to do it, categorise them as kind of post-internet or net artworks because they kind of look at how you might upload images of yourself on YouTube or Instagram or in some ways uh, be be contributing to those platforms. But actually, they're not being produced in a, in a vacuum. They're all works that have a strong, strong heritage in performance and moving image works. And I suppose, not wanting to undermine them too much, but this is part of a larger effort, certainly on my part and I think other art critics, to kind of start start drawing them into that larger kind of art historical discourse. Um, mm. It's nice to see Cheryl Donegan getting mentioned as well in your future. Yeah, I, yeah it yeah. kind of feels maybe a little bit lopsided at the end, but I really, Cheryl yeah, no, Donegan I'm fascinated yeah. with and I really think actually she's, 
in terms of like she's really key for for this generation yeah. of artists like there's a there's a certain kind of tenacity to her work yeah. and it uh, uh, kind of she's unapologetic and very brazen and she's really you know overt and open with her sexuality and and uh, and her and, and there's a presence in that mm. um, and so there's a lot of works that I would have liked to write about but anyway well, there is a limit yeah does anyone else want to jump in here uh, Erica or Sophia do you want to no no don't want to Add any thoughts there? Uh, in which case, well, we might come back to you. I think okay. There's a lot to talk about in still in your future, but I'd like to uh, move on a little bit to Erica. You're looking a little unprepared here. Sorry, you had lulled finding into our... Page. Just finding my page. <laughs> Erica has just come back from uh, the Newcastle AV Festival. Um, you are page... Uh, 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 she, Got it. Got okay. it. Uh, the AV ready. Festival. Meanwhile, what about socialism? Um which brought together a collection of video works and film works over a course of maybe one or two months. And you caught uh, one weekend, uh, which centered on uh, three video or three filmmakers. Um, is that right? Yes. yes. And uh, it was called Tracing the Anabasis of the Japanese Red Army, Conversations Across Three Artists. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the context of the AV Festival and how uh, well, how this weekend came about and what, what it was showing? Sure. Um, I believe in the past the AVIA Festival has been every two years, yeah. and this time they have the theme, Meanwhile, What About Socialism, um, split into two parts. So the first part is this year, and then the second part will be in 2018. The theme will continue. Um, and the question comes from um, George Orwell's text, uh, The Road to Wigan Pier, but um, in the literature around the festival, apparently it was also the most Googled word in 2015, um, among other reasons, because of the kind of ascendance of Bernie Sanders yeah. in the U.S. Um, so the the festival's theme was trying to kind of look at histories of the left, both within the context of the U.K. and specifically the North, since it's located in Newcastle, um, but also to look more internationally. And so... The programming, the film programming is clustered around different kinds of weekends. And so I went up for the Japanese Red yeah. Army weekend, which um, kind of tries to look at a network spanning between um, Japan, Lebanon, and um, to Bangladesh as mm -hmm. well. So there were five films, two by Masayo Adachi, two by Eric Baudelaire, and one by Naimo Hyman that were shown uh, over the course of the weekend. Yeah. And I think most people may have, well, some people may have seen Eric Baudelaire's film recently at Roden Row. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, they they are remarkable for bringing together, uh, well, films that bring together the JR, the JRA, the Japanese Red Army, and they all bring in different facets of that particular history and how they've kind of related across those three countries. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the Masio and Adachi film, a.k.a. Serial Killer? Yes. yes. It's incredible. Um, it was just restored uh, recently. There was an Adachi retrospective at Rotterdam this year. Um, and so the AV Festival was showing a restored DCP. Um, you can actually see the film on YouTube. However, it's really resolutely the kind of film that would not work so well if seen on a laptop screen. Um, I did actually just watch this this afternoon. So I'm sorry they, for you. I <laughs> yes. mean, re to see it projected so beautifully, yeah. I mean, it's really quite incredible. Basically, it... Um, the title refers to a young man who um, killed four people in um, 
the late 1960s? Yes. Yeah. Um, in 1969, and he was 19 years old. And um, this is kind of announced at the beginning of the film with a title. Um, but the whole film is um, a series of landscape shots of places where he might have been. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the murders were committed in different parts of Japan. So it takes you on this kind of journey um, to the different locations. And basically there was a kind of um, Adachi was also a prolific film critic. And he wrote a text in which he elaborated what he called landscape theory. And this is the idea that um, social forces become visible in the landscape. And so a.k.a. serial killer tries to show us these landscapes. And then it's paired with this kind of incredible free jazz Mm. soundtrack. And so it's really um, a a non-didactic film. I mean, we're really not told anything about what these places are, but um, we can absolutely read traces of a country in massive transition and with very um, kind of changing relationships between the countryside and the city. And so the idea is that we are meant to speculate on the conditions of possibility for this young man becoming a serial killer by looking at these images. And that's quite a leap, right? Mm. So it places a huge demand um, on the viewer. Yeah, and he himself, Adachi, then later left Japan and moved to Lebanon. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about his biography there? Because that's where he starts becoming quite a fascinating figure, both as an artistic or filmmaker, but also more as a cultural emblem, really, an icon, I would say. Sure. Um, He was really involved with the student movement, um, which was like very vibrant in, in Tokyo in the late 60s. Um, and he was known for making what were called pink films. And these are basically like softcore porns, mm-hmm. but with um, political messages. So at Rotterdam, I went to see one called Sex Game, um, which is it's actually quite an unsettling film. It's a kind of series of rapes. Um, the game is actually a rape game. Um, but then through this, we're introduced to different sort of factions in the student movement in Tokyo. Right. And so these were kind of commercially marketed as sex films, but with a political message. So um, he ended up, yeah, yeah. yeah. He ended up um, going to Cannes, to the film festival, and on the way back, stopped off in Lebanon. Um and the idea was that he would make a film there documenting the Fedayeen. Um, and he ended up staying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where he made PFLP, but, Declaration yeah. of World War. But he was, was he, just getting back a little bit, he was almost ostracized for those films as well, those pink films. They, was he, he was kind of isolated and alienated at that time as well. Somewhat, yeah. though he was also um, one of the kind of leading right. figures at the time. So I don't think that he sort of left, as I understand it, um, I don't think that he left Japan out of, you know, ostracization, um, but ended up staying um, in Lebanon afterwards for 27 years. And so that's the title of the Eric Baudelaire film. Yeah, he picks up on this this story itself. Yeah. But uh, did he actually continue to make films while he was in the Lebanon or was that? No. No. So again, the title, the end of the very long title of the Eric Baudelaire film is um, 27 Years Without Images. And so PFLP, Declaration of World War, which is really a a kind of newsreel film, you know, compared to AK Serial Killer, which is not didactic whatsoever. Here we move to the kind of opposite end of the spectrum, and it's absolutely a call to take up arms. Mm. 
Um, and the film toured around Japan on a red bus afterwards, trying to enlist participants in um, yeah, this quite kind extraordinary. Of yeah. Image, really, this bus trying to, yeah. I mean, I think it was inspired by the, um, you know, the trains that would travel around the Soviet Union yeah. showing films in the 20s. Um, but they painted the bus red. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's an incredible image. Um, but yeah. that was the last film that he yeah. made until um, just recently. And I think a couple, two years ago, he, I'm not quite sure on that, but just recently he's returned to filmmaking after this very long hiatus. And for this weekend, um, Eric Baudelaire was present. No. no. One of the most interesting things about it is that, I mean, normally artists have quite a position of prominence in Q&As after screenings at festivals. And that was sort of the opposite here. Um, The only artist present was Naim Mohaiman, and he was present via Skype. Um, All the rest of the Q&As were populated with kind of historical actors that were involved um, in the Japanese Red Army or or in events that they orchestrated. So um, Mei Shigenobu, who is the daughter of Fusako Shigenobu, the leader of the JRA, was there and participated in many of the Q&As. One of the hostages of the DACA hijacking. Yeah, Carol Wells. Yes, Carol Wells, an American actress who's now in her 70s. She was there. And so on Skype, she ended up speaking. She was there in person, but speaking on Skype to A.J. Mahmood, who was the hostage negotiator in DACA. And they hadn't spoken in like 40 40 years. years. And so this is happening in the audience. And then Carol um, Wells also asked uh, Mei Shigenobu how she feels today about her mother's actions. And she asked her if she was ashamed. Mm. And you could really feel in the room that there was this kind of moment mm. of tension. Um, but, you know, Mei Shigenobu has worked for as a journalist for many years, and she's a really compelling speaker. And she immediately said, you know, some people call my mother a terrorist, but I call her a hero. Um, so these were the kinds of conversations that were happening after um, the screenings. It wasn't a question of, you know, why do you think the essay film has made a resurgence today? Or these kind of more, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not, not yeah, that I there's could, anything yeah. wrong with that. I'm very interested in that question personally. But this was another kind of interrogation of historical materials where, you know, I mean, I really had, for me, it was really compelling programming. I really yeah. felt like I learned a lot, but also saw a lot of amazing films. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the JRA, although they're no longer active, I mean, I, I think Adachi said, was it no, Shinogobu, he said that they've stopped in 2001. Is that correct? They yeah. officially disbanded yeah. because um, Fusako Shigenobu was arrested um, and I think has you know, yeah. officially dissolved, but they were they, they were largely dormant, uh, you know, for many, many years before that. Should we talk a little bit about uh, Mahayamin's uh, film as well, which, again, picks up on the JRA, but the impact in Dakar. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that work as well? Sure. Um, so that one is called United Red Army, um, and it's the first in um, this trilogy 
which I think is just a trilogy or perhaps it's ongoing. I'm actually not quite sure. Um, but there was a hijacking um, done by the, the Japanese Red Army in 1977, and the plane ended up having to land in Dhaka. Yeah. And so there's this kind of ensuing negotiation with this guy, Eiji Mahmood, who I gather is a family friend of mm-hmm. Naim Mohaiman. Their fathers oh, were right. friends, I believe. Um, and it's quite interesting because um, this in itself is a really fascinating story. But what emerges in uh, United Red Army, the, the Mohaiman film, is that, in fact, um, this kind of moment actually is also the moment of an attempted military coup in Bangladesh and that there are no images of that coup except for these images that were found in a Japanese television archive. It's incredible. It's really incredible. So there's a sense that Mahayman turns to this because, yes, he's interested in legacies of the 70s radical left, but also because nested within this event, there is a sort of a passage onto this very kind of crucial moment of Bangladeshi history when the country was quite young. Um, And there's an attempted and failed coup. And then in the aftermath of that, many, many people were killed Mm -hmm. kind of as, you know, retribution for having staged this coup. Um, So for him, you know, he's interested in sort of his memories of this event, seeing this broadcast on television as a child, not really understanding it, being interested in the Japanese Red Army, but also recognizing that you know, Bangladesh apparently has no copies of, of this footage anymore and that he found it in a Japanese archive. How did he come across it? Does he say how he found it? I'm or? not sure. Actually, the unfortunately, I forget his name, but he worked with a, an artist who is Japanese who lives in um, Vienna. If he's listening, I'm very sorry <laughs> that I don't remember your name. But um, he worked with him as a kind of research assistant mm-hmm. associate working in Japan to to do the work of going into the television studios to get the archival footage. And the footage is kind of quite beautiful because it's very sort of smudgy. Right. Um, yeah. Um, you talk a little bit about how as a culture or well, present day we're sort of fetishizing or the tendency to fetishize the sort of 70s left. Um, and there's some notable examples of that perhaps in the last few years. Um do you want to talk about how this went to some ways to kind of radicalize or even create something of the now within the within the festival? Mm-hmm. I mean, I will first of all say that I include myself in yeah. in the people that kind of feel a great deal of nostalgia for this moment, and I think it is really amazing in some sense that there's been such an interest in recovering these histories of radical politics and radical filmmaking from the 1970s. Um, on the other hand, the more cynical part of me wonders, you know, what's really happening and and what happens when you have films produced in a very kind of active social context that are now extracted from that and shown in a gallery mm-hmm. as this kind of, you know, ossified relic. Um, and so that's what I was trying to point to in this piece when I talk about this pervasive sense of a kind of left melancholy, as if, you know, all we can do is return to these earlier moments 
um, because we can't quite face the failures of our mm -hmm. present. Um, and the programming overall at the AV Festival, and, and especially this weekend, struck me as really trying to do something different. And a lot of it had to do with the way the question and answer periods were organized, so that there was a sense that we were actually interested in contextualization and in questions of historiography and in trying to make connections between this material, which in some sense can seem to belong to a different era. Yeah. I mean, the understanding of terrorism operative here and hijacking operative here in the Japanese Red Army material is so far from now. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Mei Shigenobu said over and over again, which, I mean, I think we can question, but she said um, they weren't trying to hurt people, but the media was so controlled. They had no Twitter. She's yeah. actually wrote a PhD, I think, on Twitter activism. Um, they had no Twitter, so they had to hijack planes in order to get access to media coverage. But it was only about becoming visible. They never wanted to hurt people. Now, if you actually look at the history of the Japanese Red Army, it's unclear whether yeah. that's always totally true. Nonetheless, um, we can think you know, that this is a very different moment, and there are these structural differences. And I felt that the discussions around these films were really interested in trying to think through how we got from then to now. And that's not always the tone, I think, that pervades some other engagements with the 1970s, where it's a little bit more of a sense of like, wow, then people thought that they could really make a change. Yeah. But, you know, we just go on Facebook or something like that, yeah, you know? Yeah, a sense of of commitment, yeah. I think, yeah. in, in the AV Festival yeah. screenings that I've I've not felt in some of the other events around the 70s um, That's interesting. recently. Yeah, because you, you end talking about the theory of anabasis and how that sort of, you talk even about uh, Alain Badia, um, you talk about that sense of going through, what, traveling, really, mm -hmm. traveling inland, and how that sort of, let's say, how that theory sort of brings the show or the, the weekend together. Do you want to talk about how mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. framed it? Sure. Um, so this idea of Anabasis is the title of one of the Eric Baudelaire films, um, and it's meant to be an exhibition, an expedition into the interior of a country. Um, but um, reading, Homei King has written a really amazing text on um, Baudelaire, and she discusses this um, idea from Baidu that, in fact, it's not just an expedition in, it's actually a kind of an expedition in that makes possible a different kind of journey back. Mm. Um, and that, I think, captured this idea of returning to this moment um, and these journeys. I mean, it's a really kind of remarkable international network of travel and affiliation mm. and radical politics and everything. Um, so to go there, but so that there could be a return route that would not have been possible without the journey mm. outwards. And that's, um, Badiou says that Anabasis is the free invention of a wandering that will have been a return, a return that did not exist as a return route prior to the yeah. wandering. You know, so it's that, that idea that by, by going outwards, you can actually forge a pathway back that, that's yeah. kind of um, wouldn't otherwise have been possible. 
It sounds like a really great weekend, I have to say. Um, it was incredible. Yeah. Does anyone want to talk about the way in which maybe social media has informed, I think, Isabel, your work, uh, your feature rather, um, taps into that. I mean, talking about Twitter and that kind of relationship of terrorism, really. But I know that's just another strategy, a way of, of proliferating an image or an idea. I mean, do you see a kind of the ways in which those things may have changed as well or parallels between the works that you cover across uh, your feature. It's a bit of a tall order, I have to say. Where to go from this? Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in Twitter activism, yeah. although, of course, those those platforms have um, amazing potential, yeah. don't they? Um, but can you rephrase the question? It's more about, I was thinking, like, just seeing parallels between the what Erica was discussing about social media and how, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they took to hijacking uh, in order to get their message across and how those things may have changed for the present day and also how they may have, well, it's a, it's a bit of an extreme leap to make, but how, uh, you know, artists, uh, an artist that you're mentioning or detailing may have, how that's reflected in some of the practices of the artists you discuss. Yeah, I'm not sure if the changes are as dramatic as people no. would claim them to be. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they are the platforms for self-publishing or, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's ways of... And the closing down of social media is always a really bad sign, isn't it? I mean, I mean the fact that we have, you know, that they are available to us is a good thing. But, mm. um, uh, but I mean, I think that they're very controlled. Uh, there's the number of, you know, media outlets keeps. Mm. Um, it's not proliferating. It's going the other way, uh, and and I don't think social media changes that. No, Sophia, do you have any feelings about social media at the moment in terms of image making? Um. I was just um, <clears throat> thinking about James Coleman and his reluctance to um, to engage with social media as we were talking, yeah. and um, and I think it's such a difficult thing to do at the moment. It's nearly yeah. impossible to do what he has done. So I was just thinking about his invisibility, actually making himself more visible in that paradoxical way that you were talking yeah. about. Um, earlier that that visibility actually lends itself to invisibility. But I was thinking about the reverse of that, how one's invisibility actually is inscribed in a kind of visibility. And Yvonne Rayner, in, in a piece that I've been struggling to remember at the moment, um, um, actually explores this issue in terms of the ageing woman. And I just cannot remember the name of the film, so it's uh, really mm. tantalising. But it just... Again, she kind of begins to talk about the idea of invisibility in old age, which mm. is a different, is predicated on a different kind of uh, concept of visibility and visibility in 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 the way that you are articulating in in your piece. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that we could that you branch off. There's a there's a whole you know. Uh, area of research that you can go there with that yeah that yeah. kind of the aging the aging process of woman and processes of stages of invisibility i suppose that's the kind of where we go with hot babe like when hot babe ages you know she no think, longer she yeah. can, she discontinues to circulate but just going back briefly and i know we're we're really kind of um veering off but i think maybe james coleman's got this kind of there's a kind of privilege you know, it's a kind of privilege that he doesn't need to engage in in social media. He's sort of, he doesn't, he, in so many ways, I think for young artists, it's a kind of condition of participation. Mm. 
And for me, as you know, as a, as a young critic, I mean, I, I feel obliged to use Twitter and yet I absolutely feel no inclination to do so. It feels so unnatural. Um, but I mean, does oneself promote or do you just, you know, do you just cease yeah. to kind of, I mean, how, how do you navigate? I find it really hard to navigate. I really object to the kind of terms and conditions of usage and mm. of image usage where those images, if I take an image of an, an artwork and I put it on Instagram, they become the license holder. So there's so much... I find I find it really really difficult to navigate. That's why I think Erica Scorti is quite good at mm. mo- uh, negotiating or commenting on the modes of distribution mm. and the networks of yeah. that. And I think her work is smart in that in that sense. Mm. Um, I think we've got a minute left. So has anyone's got any quick thoughts to add? Otherwise, I shall start drawing a close to today's program. No. Mm. Silence. Okay. Just good. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank my you. serious thanks <laughs> to to everybody involved, to Erica, to Isabel, and to Sophia for coming on tonight's program. Uh, many thanks, and uh, uh, we'll see you again next month. I'm Chris McCormack. Signing off. Good night. Bye.